Many Christians aren't prepared to answer the objections to their faith. But what if there was a podcast dedicated to equipping Christians with answers to engage the culture? That's the mission of Dean's Dialogue. And today I'll be, I'll be discussing the historical reliability of Acts with philosopher and apologist Dr. Tim McGrew. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well. I uh, hope you're having a great day. I am super excited for today's show. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I'm here with Dr. Tim McGrew. Dr. Tim McGrew, how are you doing, my friend? I am doing well. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you once again for taking the time out to come on the show. So for those of for those of the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your work or have never heard of you, um, what who are you? What do you do? Uh, what works are you involved in, have been involved in, debates, things like that. Just give a, a general background of who you are so the listeners can be more familiar uh, with who you are. Sure. I'm a professor of philosophy at Western Michigan University, where I've been teaching for nearly 25 years now. I am uh, a husband, father, chess player, research nut, uh, generally just a guy who loves to dig into issues. I um Became interested in apologetics when I was in college because I wanted to know whether what I had been taught all my life was in fact true and defensible. And I became convinced that it is, and I've retained that interest really throughout my career and have been able to do more with it in recent years as I've had my time freed up a little bit by completing some other things. Um, getting tenure was good. Getting promoted to full professor was good. I spent some time as chairman of my department and that was a heavy workload, but I am now released from that. The ball and the chain have been removed from my ankle, and so I am just a professor once again, and I in, am enjoying the freedom even just this summer. Awesome, awesome. So let's just go ahead and, and, and just jump right into it. So mm -hmm. as a novice apologist, um, often you know the apologetics focus when it comes to the New Testament usually focuses around the reliability of the Gospels, um, a little bit of the New Testament, and then focuses on the resurrection. And, <clears throat> and recently, uh, gentlemen like you, Craig Keener, uh, Craig Evans, um, have been focusing on the book of Acts. So in the grand scheme of historical reliability, the question that, that I want to ask, and I'm sure the audience wants to know is, why is Acts so important? Why is it more important than the historical reliability of, say, something like Colossians or Philippians, you know, or Jude? What what is it about Acts that makes it so crucial to, uh, you know, the Christian worldview? That's a great question. Um, there are a couple different ways to answer it. First, Acts really bridges the gap between the Gospels, which tell us the story of Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection, and the letters of Paul, which tell us all about the early church. You know, there we find it in full flight. There, it's, it's ongoing, and there are clearly particular issues that different churches are struggling with, and Paul is writing to them and helping them to work these things out. But what happened between the death of Jesus and this flourishing church that we find, where Paul is writing letters in the 50s and 60s, uh, to these churches. The the book of Acts shows us how we got from one to the other. And because it's written by Luke, by the same person who wrote the third gospel, it gives us an interesting chance to look into the kind of writer that Luke was. And let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. 
the Gospels, for the most part, take place in a fairly limited setting. Almost all of the action happens in a, a geographic region the size of New Jersey that's on the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire. It's not exactly a backwater, but the opportunities for us to check out, you know, to confirm historical details are somewhat limited by the sheer geographic narrowness of the Gospels. When you get to the book of Acts, there are numerous points of external confirmation because Acts takes place on a much wider geographic canvas. You've got these journeys that Paul is making all the way around Macedonia, down the Greek peninsula. Uh, it, eventually he gets all the way to Rome. This is a fantastic opportunity for us to check and see how the secular evidence plays off against what we find in the book of Acts. And when we discover how Luke treats his material, we realize that this is somebody who is well-informed and he's very careful. And that is, of course, the claim. I'll have to substantiate that claim, but I think that it can be very easily substantiated. And when we see that, then that tells us what we can expect from the Gospel of Luke. And once we have that point of entry, that largely confirms the historicity of the other Gospels as well. So it's a very natural way for us to authenticate the Gospels, the other Gospels, uh, and even the Gospel of Luke by saying, well, is this somebody who tells the truth, who's careful, who we can check up on, and when we check up, it matters and it shows him to have been right? And the answer is yes, over and over again in so many ways. Okay, so that, that's uh, definitely a very good description of the importance of Acts as far as its ability to bridge what takes place in the Gospels and the flourishing of the early church. And if you if you don't mind, I'd like to put my uh, skeptic hat on for, for a second. And what the skeptic will say, at least in the conversations that I've had, and, and I'm sure maybe that, sure that, that you've had, is number one, how do we even know that the author of Acts, number one, is is Luke. How do we know that that's Luke when um, he doesn't give his name at the beginning of the chapter? He doesn't actually give his name anywhere in in Acts. So how is it that as an apologist, uh, a New Testament uh, historian, um, or how would a New Testament historian say, well, yeah, this is this is definitely Luke? Okay, so the question really should be seen in a broader context, how do we know that any book is written by anyone? And the answer is that there is an unbroken chain of testimony to authorship going all the way back to people who were in a position to know. And that that unbroken chain is not challenged by any rival theory that can also be traced back to people who were in a position to know. The unanimous evidence of the 2nd and 3rd century church fathers is not only that this book had been written by Luke, the companion of the Apostle Paul, the physician, but also that everybody had known all along that it had been written by this person. And the same can be said of Matthew and of Mark. Uh, the external testimony which is the first thing that we look for if we want to know who wrote these works that are attributed to Thucydides, was it really Thucydides? We use the same method. We say, well, 
how far back can we trace the external attestation? And were the people who gave the first attestation in a position to know? And are there any rival traditions? And the answer here is we can trace it back much closer to the authorship than we can for most works of antiquity. That the testimony does go back to people who are the people who should be in possession of this book and who should be most interested to know where it came from. And there is no rival tradition of authorship whatsoever. So that's pretty much a case closed, except for the fact that it's part of the Bible, and that makes people hyper-skeptical and makes them reject evidence of a kind they would accept unhesitatingly in any subject that had no religious connotations. So my take on this is let's have no double standards. Let's do this kind of evaluation the same way that we ought to do it with secular history, and I'm happy to take my stand on that ground and make my case that way. All right. Well, well, well I won't challenge you on that. It seems seems like you made a, a pretty good case with regards to Luke and then you know the, the, the Gospels in general. So in, in any book that we look at in the New Testament, we're trying to figure out, is this uh, reliable historically? Um, <laughs> is there such thing as internal evidence for its historical reliability? And if so, what does that look like? And more specifically, what does that look like in Acts? Yeah, so um, there are all kinds of uh, evidence that we can look for. When we look for internal evidence, one of the things that we look for is, I mean, the, the, the term has to be handled with some care. Uh, we can look for evidence that's internal to the New Testament documents, but it's very important that we remember that the New Testament is not just one book. It's a collection of books, and the books of the New Testament fit together in ways that um, we that we look for when we're looking at secular historical documents. So, for example, there's the evidence of undesigned coincidences. Um, uh, I suppose I should explain what I mean by that. Sometimes we have two texts that interlock with one another in ways that point towards truth. They perhaps one text raises a very natural question, which is then explained by another one. And that's the case with the book of Acts and the letters of Paul. Uh, even very skeptical scholars will acknowledge that uh, a number of the Pauline epistles are genuine. Uh, usually the uh, first four and then three of the others are pretty much uh, accepted. So, uh, so right. So Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, uh, Philippians, Philemon, and First Thessalonians are generally granted, even by fairly skeptical New Testament scholars, to be authentic works from the hand of Paul. Uh, there are some questions about. Ephesians and Colossians, I don't think there's any substance to those questions, but there are, are more people who will doubt whether Paul actually wrote those. And uh, Second Thessalonians, again, I think that the argument against it is very weak. Uh, the pastoral epistles, there are some stylistic variances from the way that Paul normally writes that people have taken to be indications that he didn't write them. I don't find that argument very convincing at all, but 
leave that aside for the moment, we can make this kind of case from the seven widely granted uh, letters of Paul and the interconnections of those things with a book of Acts. And I can give examples if you like. Yeah, sure. You've you've piqued my interest for uh, definitely because I've never heard about the interlockings of, of Acts and the writings of Paul. So, so what would be some of those uh, internal evidences, those interlockings that, that take place? So think about Paul's defensiveness as he's writing his second letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 opens with Paul's sort of complaint to them. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Well, what's that all about? Letters of recommendation? You can read all around in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and indeed in all of Paul's letters, and you will find no answer to the question of what he's talking about there. So we've hit a speed bump, right? We were reading this letter on its own terms, uh, and we've run into something we can't explain. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no good answer to it. Maybe the answer is we don't know. That's fine. We're allowed to say we don't know sometimes in historical investigation. But in this case, we don't have to wonder. Go over to Acts chapter 18. So we're moving from 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's letter, to Acts, Luke's narrative history, chapter 18, verse 27. There's someone named Apollos who has been preaching the baptism of John and then Priscilla and Aquila take him under their wing and they instruct him more fully in the gospel. And when he wished, says Luke in Acts, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So Apollos went to Achaia with letters of recommendation. Well, what's the capital city of Achaia? The Emperor Augustus had made Corinth the capital of Achaia. Corinth, where the church is that Paul's writing to, where he says, do we need letters of recommendation to you? No, you know I didn't, is the obvious answer. So he's thinking of Apollos in this case. Now it's no mystery why he uses that particular phrase to them. The answer we find over in the book of Acts. Um, Again, just an, another connection there back in 1 Corinthians, so the first of Paul's letters to that church. Yeah, my mind's blown after the first example, ladies and gentlemen. Keep going. Uh, well, well, let's do more, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. A few chapters later, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, the clear implication here is that Apollos came and preached at Corinth after Paul had left the city. Paul had been there first, Paul left, Apollos came along. Now, if you look at the timeline in Acts chapter 18, start with verse 1, Paul is in Corinth. 24 through 28, Apollos is being prepared and then sent over to Achaia. And then Acts 19 uh, verse 1, you find that that's exactly the timeline. Paul's there, Paul does his thing, Apollos comes along subsequently. Again, small connection, but there it is. Um, <laughs> here's another one from the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. 
So this is Paul converted on the road to Damascus, gone off into the Arabian wilderness to reflect on what his conversion means. Three years later, he goes to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas. This is Peter, Simon Peter, right? Yep. Who is, if anybody is, a super apostle. Paul will even use that phrase later in this same letter to the Galatians church. And, uh, and remained with him 15 days. Man, I don't know about you, but if I got a chance to hang out with Peter, I think I would be spending more than 15 days there. <laughs> right? I, th- I think I'd be camping out for, I don't know, half a year or so. Paul <laughs> spends longer periods of times in some cities. Why such a short visit? Can't find out reading Galatians. Go ahead. You got to check it out. But if you go to Acts chapter 9, verse 29, Paul's in Jerusalem, and he spoke, it says, and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Oh, people were trying to kill him. That's why his visit was cut short. There you go. So again, we've got these interconnections, and and I can, uh, I can keep going with <laughs> these. Oh, here's, I'll give you one more. This one's beautiful. Okay, First Corinthians chapter four. Uh, Paul writing to the church tells them that is why I sent you Timothy. Past tense sent. So Timothy's already been sent. Twelve chapters later, at the end of the book, 1 Corinthians 16, when Timothy comes, receive him in this way. Okay, wait, Timothy's already gone. Why isn't Timothy expected to arrive first? After all, Paul's still sitting here writing his letter. But he clearly thinks that the letter's going to get there before Timothy gets there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's odd. Shouldn't Timothy travel at least as fast as a letter? Well, okay, what what could resolve this tension? We can infer that maybe Timothy took some indirect route to Corinth. But if we have the book of Acts beside us, we can open to Acts chapter 19, verse 21, and we can see that he did take such a route, that he went up and around by land through Macedonia, then down the Greek peninsula to Corinth. The letter's probably being sent right across the Aegean Sea on a boat. So (laughs) the route that we get in Acts 19 helps us to understand why it is that Timothy can already be on his way to Corinth, and yet the letter is expected to arrive before Timothy does. Yeah. Make sense? No, absolutely that makes sense. Those are just uh, some really, you know, solid examples of this interlocking that you've talked about that, that helps support the internal evidence for the reliability of of Acts and Paul's writings. Thank you so much for that insight, Dr. McGrew, and thank you all for listening to part one of my interview with apologist and philosopher Dr. Tim McGrew on the historical reliability of Acts.